What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Heard Tell. It's such a wonderful day to be with you and to help us do what we always do, turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the things that really matter so we get the good information that helps us understand and discern the times we live in. Going to do a few things a little different uh, today. We've been really, really heavy on domestic news, especially with all the Trump stuff. So we're going to take some time, go around the world, a couple different countries, some stories you need to be following and need to be aware of. We'll take care of that. Tyler Curtis on the program, returning Another one of our great Young Voices contributor. He's also a loan officer at a bank. We're going to talk about housing, how young people, especially in the younger working generations and dispirited people groups, are having trouble getting housing loans now because of the rising interest rates and the economy and things that are going on. But also those high interest rates means some folks, like me, that own homes, kind of going to be a little squirrely about selling them. Things like housing cross a lot of streams, like economics, like culture, like pay and labor and real inflation and monetary inflation and all sorts of things. When you build a house, it takes 26 trades to build that house. Big economic indicators, plus something very practical for what most people is their most valuable possession they own their home. I'm going to talk to Tyler Curtis on the program about that today. But first, hey, we've been real domestic heavy on the show recently. That's something we want to try to stay balanced. Let's get overseas and get some news from things that are going over from wherever you are to wherever this stuff's happening. Let's talk about it a little bit, especially with the news in our national news cycle being all Trump all the time right now. Let's go see what's going on in the other parts of the world. Let's go. From wherever you are to way over there, this is news from over yonder. Niger. Things are getting bad in West Africa. We've talked about this on the program before. You have to pay attention to international news because there's a lot of cross streams that are meeting in the country of Niger right now. This has Russia's fingerprints all over it. In fact, when this coup went down, uh, some of the coup protesters that were supporting the new military junta that took over was marching with Russian flags. We already know Russia is very engaged in Mali next door. Burkina Faso, the next country over, has also had a lot of Wagner and Russian influence going on. This is all because of so much Western influence in Niger and neighboring Nigeria, which has long been the power in Western Africa. 
there's a lot of cross streams. So things like international diplomacy, things like the war in Ukraine, that all spills over to this. We've talked for years now about the problems in Africa and how world powers like Russia, like China, are moving into Africa and trying to exert influence. And the United States is not really paying really close attention to these sorts of things. Now, Niger was a colonial power under France, and we all know the long and sordid history of colonial French countries and how almost all of them are a total mess nowadays. We can rehash that history later, but things are getting bad in Niger. Now the US, the UK, other countries are pulling their embassy staff out. The ruling um, coup folks, who was actually (laughs) the leader of this thing, was the head of the former president's bodyguards of all things. We're not exactly sure how they're going to fall on this, but the Russian influence is very concerning. This whole region can get ugly in a big hurry, and underneath all of this, too, going back to the Ukraine-Russia war again, now that the grain shipments are getting interrupted again, you're looking at war, you're looking at possible famine. There's a lot of bad going on in West Africa, and we need to pay attention to it. Keep your eye out for Niger. Make sure you're following overseas outlets. Put a little bookmark in your news. Keep an eye on this thing. This thing has simmered for years. It looks like it may be flaring up. Pakistan. Let's go over to Pakistan. Uh, a horrible bombing at a political rally killed at least 63 people. They think it was a homicide bombing. Um, elements of the Pakistan Taliban have taken credit for this. This is all under the backdrop of whether or not they're going to be having elections. Imran Khan, the former prime minister who was arrested himself earlier, has been involved in some of this. He's saying that the current Pakistan military and the military is the ruling power in Pakistan don't uh, have any qualms about that they are petrified of elections there's a lot of moving parts here this is very complicated but when you're having major bombings like this in Pakistan remember they've got nukes this is a country you got to pay attention to we've kind of forgotten about it in the U.S. news media since we pulled out of Afghanistan this is still a volatile region we need to pay attention to what's happening on it Keep an eye out going forward, especially as the elections start coming forward and see if they actually have them. In the middle of all this, by the way, now you've got the Taliban, which is a little different, but kind of the same strand as the Afghanistan Taliban that we've all been dealing with. You've got China going into Afghanistan. You've got other countries going to Afghanistan for the raw earth minerals. Remember, we've been talking about those things. Keep an eye on this region. Pakistan needs to be stable, and it looks like they're having a little trouble maintaining that stability. Ukraine. I already mentioned Ukraine. Big development over the weekend was Ukraine has developed suicide drones to the point that they can accurately target uh, things deep into Russia. They hit some military targets in Moscow City, which is a financial district just outside of Moscow by about two or three miles. They hit a couple military targets. Russia also claims that since then there's been other attacks and have said they have shot down some Ukrainian drones. You can take that for a grain of salt because it's hard to tell what Russia is and isn't lying about. In retaliation for this, of course, Russia started attacking the grain ports. They pulled out of the grain agreement uh, they had to let grain ship all over the world out of Ukraine. And they have gone back to what they've been doing all along. They are attacking civilians, cities, people. Ukraine hit a military target. Russia responds by killing more civilians. Be very careful of all the propaganda going on about this with Ukraine attacked Russia. Russia has been at war with Ukraine in the Crimea for over eight years and the current invasion for over 560 days now. They invaded Ukraine, a sovereign country. This is all Russia's fault. 
there's no version of this where Ukraine should have been invaded by Russia. You can talk about all the politics you want, NATO, whatever. Russia didn't have to invade Ukraine. They chose to. Now Ukraine has taken the fight to them. Think of this more like the Doolittle raid in World War II. It didn't really do any damage, but psychologically, it was a huge blow. Plus, the fact that Ukraine showed that not only can they attack in Russia, they can do it with a whole lot of precision, hitting the exact office in a skyscraper building that contained a supposedly semi-secret, depending on which version you want to believe, government unit of the Russian military and intelligence apparatus. That's very impressive. Obviously, they got help from Western countries on some of that. But it was a precise military strike. And Putin's doing what he's always doing, killing civilians in retaliation. Who the good guys and the bad guys here is very, very clear. Ignore the propaganda. Ignore the stuff coming out of the otherwise. That does not mean we can't be discerning and hold accountability for the mountains of money we're shipping in Ukraine. There needs to be accountability there. Doesn't mean Ukraine's a squeaky clean country. But all those things fall underneath the fact that there's a good guy and a bad guy here. Russia cannot invade countries and Ukraine needs to win this war and we should continue to support them. Mexico. Go down to Mexico. This is an interesting headline to keep in mind because it crosses again. These stories cross streams into what's going on domestically. You want to talk about immigration. You want to talk about the border crisis. You want to talk about labor and migrant labor. Headline out of Reuters, remittances. That's the money that people outside of Mexico go and earn and then send back home to friends, family or whatever in Mexico from abroad. Um, total 5.5 billion in June, reading from Reuters here, just under the all-time high reached this month, but dampened in real terms by the sharp appreciation of peso against the dollar. The peso strengthened more than 15% versus the dollar in June of 2022 to June of 2023, so in the last year, boasted by higher interest rates and nearshoring, that's in quotes, or the relocation and manufacturing largely from Asia to the area. The appreciation has caused some Mexican communities who rely heavily on remittances sent from the United States to clamp down on spending. Meanwhile, some workers in the U.S. have tried to send more cash home to cushion the impact. With the June increases in remittances, Mexico reached a quarterly record $16.3 billion. Let me repeat that number. That's the money people are earning outside of Mexico sending it back. $16.3 billion and broke a 12-month record of $61.2 billion. Mexican President AMLO it said that Mexico is expected to rake in more than $60 billion this calendar year. In the first half of the year, remittances reached $30.2 million. However, the economic activity in the United States moderating remittances to Mexico will likely slow in the coming quarters. What does that mean? Because you're talking about the border crisis, you're talking about immigration, you're talking about migrant workers. Most of the migrant workers are coming for one or two reasons, and those two reasons are often intertwined. They're human living conditions, they want a better life, and mostly economic reasons. A lot of times those intertwine, but the migrant workers that come and go back or come earn money and send back, the remittance makes that. So keep an eye on the fluctuation of things going on at the border. We've had things like the title came down, so we saw a bit of a drop. Now the migrations are coming back up again. Get past just the buzzword and the noise of what's going on in the border and pay attention to things like this. There's patterns to this. There's patterns to why it peaks off and drops off. And remittances are a good indication of what's going on economically, which is an indicator of what might be coming or not coming going on down at the border. United Kingdom. Let's go over to the United Kingdom. Uh, (laughs) They're going to put all the migrants 
on a barge. Now they got a migrant problem over there. People coming across the channel, things like this. This has been a hot button issue for a while. We've been talking to our UK contributors, which we're hoping to get back on soon. Uh, there was the scheme uh, back in the fall where they were going to ship them to Rwanda. That didn't go over very well. So now they're going to put them on a barge. Barge is a little bit misleading here. This is like a three-story hotel building that they put on a floating barge. It's, it's a three-story building. Okay, this thing's huge. It's not like they're going to put them on the slave galley from Ben-Hur here. However, a lot of folks are really upset about this. They say it's inhumane. They say it's a fire trap, things like this. It's become a political hot potato for the Rishi Sunak government. Not to mention the fact that the Rishi Sunak government is still pretty unpopular. And somewhere here in the next year or so, they're going to have to figure out a way to have an election being super unpopular. This is not a prison ship. That's a little bit too strongly. Remember, these are migrants. Migrants, you're going to have to find somewhere to put them. This is not a luxury. You can look at the pictures. We're going to link to it in the Substack notes. You can make up your own mind. Remember when they're saying barge, the three-story building, it looks a lot like any temporary housing you've ever seen. Your mileage may vary, but it's an interesting concept and in what they're going to do with migration. But there's no good answer to the migration problems that the UK's having. UK's having a lot of economic issues right now. This one ain't helping. Australia. Well, 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 sometimes we're wrong about stuff. Remember that story in those pictures going viral of space junk that washed up on the Australian beaches a while back? Most of us, including me, including some of our science experts we talked to, figured it was probably China just on, you know, sheer mass of who puts stuff up in space. And you're talking about uh, Australia, China's usually a good culprit. Turns out we were wrong. We admit when we're wrong on this program. India from the BBC. India has confirmed that an object that washed up on a Western Australian beach recently was one of its rockets. The giant metal dome was found on Greenhead Beach, about 250 clicks, that's 155 miles for those of you from Logan, north of Perth in mid-July, prompting speculations to its origin. But the Indian Space Agency spokesman told the BBC Monday it is from one of its polar satellite launch vehicles. Sudhir Kumar said that it would be up to Australia to decide what to do with the object. He did not comment further. His comments come after the Australian Space Agency on Wednesday said the object was most likely the third stage of a PSLV, which are used by India to launch satellites in the low to mid orbit. Countries often plan for debris from their launch to land in the oceans to prevent the damage to people and property. Dr. Alice Gorman, the space archaeologist. We have space archaeologists. How cool is that? Back to the piece. Space archaeologist and associate professor of Australia's Flinders University said that while there are often serial numbers on components, it's also possible to identify debris based on appearance. Um, according to the UN Office for Outer Space Affairs, there's another office you didn't know exists. I wonder if they're going to be in charge of the aliens invade. God help us. Countries are required to return any, quote, foreign space objects found in their territory to the owners. There's an interesting piece of international law we've got to dig into. Dr. Gorman said there are many reasons why a country would want to debris back, such as missing analysis. In this case, however, she said there would be no benefit in India retrieving the option. And West Australia already indicated it would be happy to keep it. The state's premier, George Cook, suggested local media that the object could be restored to the state museum alongside debris from NASA's Skylab, which was discovered in 1979. There you go. So sometimes we're wrong. Space debris. Y'all watch your heads out there. Canada. He's single, ladies. Shoot your shot. The Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his wife Sophia, or Sophie, excuse me, has announced that they are separating. This comes as Trudeau's trying to figure out whether he's going to be able to stay in office or not. Let's go to Reuters on Wednesday. Trudeau and his wife Sophie Gregory Trudeau unexpectedly announced their separation, likely marking the end of their 18-year-long high-profile marriage. The separation is one of Trudeau's biggest personal crises. 
although insiders and political commentary said he wants to ride out the aftershocks. He's running again, instead of source close to Trudeau, and when asked when the news of the separation might be prompting second thoughts, source was not authorized to speak about the matter publicly. <laughs> they never are. Trudeau said on an Instagram post that the couple took on the decision after, quote, many meaningful and difficult conversations. Understatement. His office said the two had signed a legal agreement and the couple would focus on raising their children jointly. The family will go on vacation together next week. That's going to be awkward. Trudeau, 51, had stressed the importance of family, and he and his wife were seen on campaign trails during elections when his children by his side after three successive wins starting in 2015. While the next election is only due by October 2025, Trudeau's campaign, by all accounts, will look very different. The shuffle was a political clearing of the deck, and it's this sort of personal clearing of the deck. He seems determined to stay on as leader of the Liberal Party, said Roderick Phillips, history professor at Ottawa's Carleton University. The shakeup and surveys of public opinion show voters are starting to tire of Trudeau, and after last week's cabinet reshuffle was designed to build on his core economic team in response to cost of living challenges that Canadians have grappled with for more than two years. At the height of the Canadian summer, when few people are paying attention, this was probably strategically timed to cast a new light on the cabinet shuffle while several promising ministers received big promotion. Quote, this cabinet was likely made with a sensitivity to manage key files while Trudeau spends more time focused on his family. Canada's got some economic issues going on. Their housing crisis is crazy. The house price is up there. We're going to have to get some of our Canadian friends back on the program. But there you go. Justin Trudeau back on the market. News from over yonder. And that's some of the things going on on other parts of the world. We try to keep a balance. It's been a little domestic heavy, so we decided to do that. We'll keep doing it if you want to do it. Let us know if you like it. Hurtellshow at gmail.com. Find us on social media. Let us know what you think. We'll do more Hurtell right after this. Hi, welcome back to Heard Tell. Let's talk housing. Sure, you've heard tell that all over the news. Anytime there's economic news, they go to housing. We're going to talk about why we look at housing is that friend of ours returning, Tyler Curtis, Young Voices contributor, went to school out in Missouri. That's the show me state, so we don't have to worry about him trying to shine us on. He's one of these evil banking people. He knows about these loans and such. Tyler, how are you, my friend? Good to see you again. I'm good. Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you for having me back, Andrew. Good. I dressed up for you. I wore my proud veteran homeowners t-shirt for you that I got for, you know, the low, low price of, I won't give the number away, but the price of my mortgage house. They gave me a free t-shirt. That's a good deal, right? So you sign away a 30 year mortgage and you get a t-shirt. That's, that's kind of, it. we're joking, but the way they pitch mortgages nowadays, boy, they throw a lot of bells and whistles for you to sign away 30 years of your life, don't they? And a lot of paperwork. By the end of it, you're going to have carpal tunnel, but uh, what I like to tell uh, clients is that it's it's short term pain, but long term gain. Let's talk about that, because the time period is really the thing with it. it, it I don't want to pick on the housing industry because this is true for any loan industry. This is really true with cars now where the average car has gone from four years to five years to almost seven years now. Any kind of loan, the pitch on the business side is. You talk about that low, low monthly payment and you de-emphasize that overall payment down the road. The reason that's really changing now is, is because mortgages have changed. 
when I bought my first house in the mid 2000s, seven and a quarter was a fantastic interest rate. I mean, you were doing backflips if you got seven and a quarter. Now it's gone down, it's come back up. Now the average is back around seven and a quarter and people are freaking out. But the difference is not just the interest rate. It is the inflation. It's so much more expensive. Talk about those two things, because that really gets to the nut of what's going on with these loans and things is how it's pitched. Not talking about that long term, but then when you start talking interest rate and inflation, that's where people are really hurting. And that's where it gets into the piece we're going to talk about, why people are starting to get priced out a little bit. Yeah, there's just so much to go into. Uh, like you said, with the inflation that we saw in the, the post-COVID era, uh, where uh, inflation was at you know, 40 year highs, uh, that made it harder for people to to save money, to to afford their mortgage payment or to afford their down payment and closing costs. Uh, but then the prices of houses were going up too. Uh, before the pandemic began, uh, the median home price in the United States is about $380,000. That's still a lot of money. But uh, and now it's it's up to about $580,000, which is the rate of, of inflation for home prices is so much more than the rate of inflation for, for everything else. Um, but yeah, you, you talk about uh, uh, affordability. I actually just saw a blog post up uh, last week. Uh, someone was actually estimating based on um, median income. So you can look at how much of your income is going towards your, your mortgage payment. And uh, it's at a 37-year high uh, percentage of your income that's going to pay for your mortgage payment. Uh, for most people in America today, it's about 37%. So it really does not give you a lot of room to, <laughs> to pay your other bills. Yeah, Tyler Curtis joining us. Let's slow down before we get into your piece that you wrote for USA Today about this. There's a reason housing and housing buying and housing building and housing loans is such an economic indicator because so many things cross their streams right there. Um, I know from doing local radio back, we had builders only talk about there's 26 different trades that go into building one house. You think of the economic impact of that. That's not counting them going to all the different suppliers to get all their stuff. Then the loan guys like you come in and put together the financing for it. And that funds y'all's business. Talk about the fact we have to talk about housing, whether it's the housing shortage crisis or the housing debt crisis or people not being able to afford homes. So much of the economy, the cross streams meet at housing, don't they? Well, they do. What's the most important thing? Uh, it's the most important part of anybody's budget is is, <laughs> is your shelter. Uh, but yeah, like you said, builders, uh, there's so many different things that go into to building a house. I And I think uh, with the inflation that we've seen with uh, uh, with uh, the cost of construction uh, has led to a decrease in the number of new houses being built. So we still have a population that's increasing. People still want to uh, go out and buy houses. So the demand is still there, but the supply just isn't rising to meet it. Um, that was a big issue. Um, I remember talking to, uh, to people, uh, customers that wanted to build houses um, and construction companies that wanted to help them build houses, but it was so difficult to find them at a, an affordable price because uh, some of the supply issues that were going on during COVID, uh, everybody was talking about that. Um, and there are just so many different components that you need to build a house from, you know, lumber and steel and concrete. Well, steel if, if you had a, you know, much larger, much larger residence, but uh, plumbing supplies are just, and you can't finish one component of your house until the you know the first component is done. Um, so it's just it's such an interconnected process. 
Um, and so uh, when you have this constriction of supply coupled with the Federal Reserve's inflationary policies uh, and the government, the federal government's fiscal inflationary policies, it just created this perfect storm where uh, real estate, even though real estate values had been going up pretty uh, steadily for, for decades, it just, it was like a shot in the arm. It just went, if you look at a chart of, of median sales prices in the United States, it just went straight up because of, uh, on the one hand, supply issues that were making it difficult to build new houses, and then demand issues where everybody wanted a house because interest rates were so low, um, and uh, there just there just wasn't enough housing to, to meet that demand. Yeah, Tyler Curtis joining us. You get into it in your piece. It's a USA Today. We're going to link to it. Make sure you read the whole thing for yourself. A lot of links in there you need to go through as well. You get into your piece, though. This has a compression effect on everything because it's not just people that can't afford to get new houses. People like you and me, we're both homeowners. My home value has gone up significantly the last five or six years very much, very well. The problem is, okay, I can sell my house. I'll make a good profit but my interest rate on the next loan is going to be almost double what this interest rate would be. So again, talking about that long-term planning, not just that monthly interest rate, I'm going to lose a big chunk of that revenue I just gained just because the interest rates higher, And that is keeping people from selling their homes or at least examining it. That has that compression effect because now you're talking about supply and demand. Now you're talking about people that could be buying other homes that aren't. This stuff all starts kind of stacking up on top of itself to make the problem worse, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, I'd have to go back and look at my piece to see the exact statistic, but I believe that the, the data now shows that uh, uh, at, at least the first quarter of 2023, there are 40% fewer homes on the market than there were in 2019. Just a huge difference. I mean, just go check out uh, your local community on Zillow and just look at the listings on there. Um, it's it's you know, a fraction of what it would have been just uh, two or three years ago. Uh, but yeah, like you mentioned, uh, some people that might, might want to move but would find it more expensive. Uh, I, I'm thinking of people that might be in their 60s or 70s. Their children have all moved out of the house and they want to downsize. They're probably thinking, why should I downsize when uh, I could buy a house that's a lot less expensive, but my payment might be, uh, assuming that they have a current mortgage, but their payment might be um, the same or even higher on a smaller, less nice house than they would if they just stayed put. Uh, and Realtor.com, the Realtor.com is this uh, this big company and they, they allow uh, people to, to list their houses uh, on there. They did a survey of, of current homeowners and asked them uh, if they'd be interested in selling their houses right now. And uh, the responses that they received are, are pretty interesting. Uh, they found that there was a substantial number of people that would like to sell their homes um, but they felt like they were locked in because they were locked in with these, these really low interest rates on their current mortgages. It was actually going to be uh, more expensive for them to move. So they just decided to stay put. So that's why we're seeing such a, like you said, a, this crunch, this supply crunch um, compression. Because um, there, there's a lot of people that would like to, to move and switch houses either to, uh, to upgrade or downgrade. Uh, but they just they feel like they can't, it would be a bad financial decision for them to trade their 3% interest rate for a 7% interest rate. And not only that, I mean, you can think about a situation where you've got 3% on a mortgage of $160,000. Um, but if you want to go buy a, a similar house, um, you know, three bed, two bath house, something like that, 
Um, it might be priced at $200,000 today and the interest rate is going to be higher. So there's just no incentive for you to move. Tyler Curtis joining us on Herd Tell. You talk about it in your piece, though. Part of that equation, too, when you're sitting down and talking to somebody for a home loan, you get into something that I don't think we talk about enough. When we Because economy, usually you talk about like unemployment and inflation and maybe wages. What, all wages aren't equal, though. So you really get into a little bit what a real wage is and wage growth and those sorts of terminology. That's more of an econ-heavy terminology. Just in a practical term, though, people understand what that is, that, hey, I'm making the same money, but it doesn't go so far. Kind of bridge it. Get out that Missouri uh, S&T degree you got there. Bridge that terminology for us, because that's an important concept for people to understand. Practical economics is something such as real wage growth, right? Yeah, let's get our our calculators. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, people are making so much more money uh, than they used to in Economists will use the term nominal, uh, which just means that this is just the pure number. Um, so I remember when I was when I was in college, I worked at a minimum wage job, and at the time in Missouri, the minimum wage was seven dollars and twenty five cents. And now we're seeing people making you know, advertisements. There's banners outside of of fast food restaurants advertising, you know, fourteen fifteen dollars an hour. Um, so this is more than double what I was making just you know six years ago. Um, but it's not real. Uh, when we talk about real wages, what we mean is how far does that extra dollar actually take you? So if you're making, you're making a thousand dollars more a month at your job, it sounds really good. But if your bills are now $1,200 more than they used to, you're actually making less money in real terms. So that's just what we mean when we talk about the difference between nominal wages and real wages. So you might be making a lot more money just in pure numbers than you used to. But when your bills are so much higher, uh, it really you're actually poorer than you used to be. Yeah, Tyler Curtis joining us. So that brings us back to inflation. Everybody hears it on the news. They intuitively understand it like, oh, well, all of a sudden this is more expensive than it usually was. We understand through economics, these things are cyclical. They're somewhat predictable. People knew at some point inflation was going to happen. And then you talk about cooling off and all those kind of things. Put it in a practical term. Again, I keep using that term because these are big concepts, but when you really think about it, it's stuff we do every day. You sit down with somebody buying a home and you're just talking through them with it. How much has inflation really affected these people? Because they're talking to you about their daily expenses. That's their job and that's your job to work through those with them. You're talking to these people every day. What's inflation like from where you're sitting and hearing these people talk about it every day for the last year or so? Yeah, I think the, well, the big thing is, uh, is grocery bills. Um, I know, you know, from personal experience and also talking from to uh, uh, to people in my community, it's, you know, you go to the grocery store, you go to Walmart and uh, you fill up your cart and what used to be 50 bucks is now a hundred bucks. Uh, and that's just, that's sort of anecdotal, but um, food prices are even, have gone up even faster 
than uh, you know the overall inflation rate. In, so we just got the new uh, inflation rate for June, just came out um, last week, I believe. Um, Bureau of Labor Statistics just released it. Um, now, the year-over-year inflation rate has lowered dramatically down to 3%. Um, but food prices are still up. I mean, bread, they released the, uh, uh, the inflation rate for bread and year over year for, uh, it was still about 13%. Uh, I remember when, when my wife and I were first married, this was just six years ago. Uh, we, we bought a loaf of bread for a dollar and now we're paying, you know, five or $6 for a loaf of bread. Uh, so it, it is hurting people a lot. And the big thing is, is those, those larger expenses, your cars, in your houses, um, because uh, prices, uh, you know, we mentioned, we touched on that a little bit ago, but prices are still going up uh, uh, concurrently with uh, with interest rates. So, you know, it, before, uh, you know, your, your interest rate may have been three percent. Now it's going to be six or seven percent, uh, but the price isn't coming down to meet it. It's still going up. Tyler Curtis joining us. You touch on it in your piece because you're talking a lot about the younger homeowners. You've been one of those recently. Talk about any kind of financial planning whatsoever. Getting that first home is so vital because now you've got, in a short period of time, if you have a responsible loan, you have some equity. You have a building block to actually start building something substantial. And one of the reasons I think you're probably focusing on this, and rightly so, is for the younger workers, especially those in their prime years, you talk about millennials and peace. So those in their thirties and forties, they're real prime earning years. If you can't get that building block pretty early on, it's almost like you're chasing it and you're setting yourself back. And it's not that homeowning is for everybody, but for the people that can do it, that can build generational wealth. That can be a building block to something else. You always have equity. You can get other loans on it. It's just a flexibility piece that a lot of people need early in life. And if you don't have it, into your 30s and 40s instead of having it into your 20s, that makes a giant change in your financial planning for your whole life, doesn't it? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it, we talk about it a lot, um, especially investment advisors will we'll talk about it a lot. Uh, you, re, investing in real estate is the best way to, to build wealth because it's, uh, historically speaking, real estate values are always going up. Uh, and that's 100% true, but it's, it's like anything else. It's sort of like investing in your health. Um, there's a lot of short-term sacrifices that you'll have to make, but over the long term, it's going to be the best thing for for you and your family. Um, and it was hard. I mean, um, getting in that position where where my wife and I were were able to afford our our first home, uh, there were sacrifices that had to be made. But uh, even in the short term, this is what I kind of want to tell. If there are any young people listening, um, there are there are even even though the a lot of the benefits are long-term. We talk about building generational wealth. Um, there's a lot of short-term benefits too. I mean, if you just look at uh, rental rental properties right now, what you'll be paying to uh, to rent uh, an apartment or even a house. Uh, when my wife and I moved in, we, we so we we got engaged and, and bought our first home in 2017. Uh, her uh, her rent on her duplex was actually a hundred dollars more than what our mortgage was on our house, which was a little bit bigger than, than the place she was living. So yeah, there, there are short-term sacrifices you have to make to get there, uh, but there's actually, there are short-term benefits too.
Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward to seeing you. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics, from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutan. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find the Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcast or at www.thesweatypenguin.com. Tyler Curtis joining us. Okay, we got to talk about the bad side of this, though, because, again, I just told you I bought a house in the mid-2000s. I got really lucky. I was able to sell a house in the 2008-2009 period when that was really hard to do because we had the mortgage crisis and we had the housing bubble and all that. Especially for the young people you're talking about in your USA Today piece, we understand that you know home mortgages and the financial, it's a competitive industry. There's less and less people. Corners start getting cut. Let's just be honest about this. So you talk about having to have down payments here. All of a sudden, well, we can figure out a way around those down payments. Well, no, you can really afford this if we do this. And there is a dark side to this industry that young people need to be aware of. It's like, hey, we can make you afford it on paper, but two, three, four years down the road, it's not going to look like that. And you get yourself in a bad situation. Where's that fine line between predatory lending and really competitive business? And how do young people kind of keep an eye out for that, especially in an uncertain economy where they're like we just said, they're trying to get stability in an unstable economy and they're looking to do that. There's people out there that will take advantage of that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's like you said, there there are programs that will allow people to buy homes with no you don't have to bring any money to the table. Uh, So even though you're going to have closing costs and and for those that don't know, closing costs are. are uh, their fees uh, and uh, insurance premiums that you have to pay up front. Uh, about half of it is going to be your your home insurance premium that you have to pay for the first 12 months and then your your taxes that are due on that property. 
and then the other half are going to be your you know your origination and your uh, appraisal fees and titling fees but you some a lot of times you can get the seller of the property to uh, to pay those for you especially if you pay a little bit higher price on the house that you're buying uh, but I, yeah, I think you're right, Andrew. There's um, because because we we have uh, we're so ingrained in American society that owning a home is is the American dream. Uh, and I think it, even though it is the American dream, we've we sort of made it into a a, a right instead of a privilege, uh, something that people are entitled to. So you know, the federal government has done so many things to make it easier to for people to buy homes. Uh, and one of those is um, a loan program that is underwritten by the Federal Housing Administration. Uh, so this is a type of loan that, that maybe some people have heard of. It's called an FHA loan because of the Federal Housing Administration. But it allows people to purchase homes even if their payment can be, uh, even if all of their debts can uh, take up 50 to even 55% of their income. So you take your mortgage all your other uh, debt payments, add them up. And if if it's uh, even 54% of your, your gross monthly income, you can still buy that house. Is it responsible? That kind of depends actually on what your total income amount is. If you're making six figures and uh, you're spending 55% of your monthly income on, uh, on your bills, it's not as big a deal if you're making $30,000 a year and you're spending 55% of your monthly income. Um, so I, I would say, I think you have to, you have to look at your own budget. If you're looking to buy a house, you have to be really honest with yourself about what you're able to afford. Uh, and don't go, don't go right up to that limit. If a, if a lender says that you're pre-qualified up to, uh, X amount of dollars, uh, just be really honest about, do you think that even if you can't afford it on paper, you can qualify for it? Uh, just, yeah, just be honest with yourself about do you do you really think that you can make all those payments tyler curtis joining us I want to ask you your piece in usa today you started out with the federal reserve you just talked about it a little bit a lot of this stuff is out of people's control they can't have you know not just the economic cycles there's so much regulation that goes into construction there's so much regulation in the banking both good and bad um that changes it and that's also cyclical and politically motivated People can't control a lot of stuff. They can't control the Federal Reserve setting rates. What can they control? Obviously, personal finance, the key word there is personal. It's not one size fits all. But what do you tell people, whether they're young, old, whatever, what is the biggest thing you can control when it comes to something like wanting to buy a home or something like this? Yeah, I definitely understand uh, it's tough. You, you kind of just want to shake your fist at the sky and say, hey, why are they are they passing these policies? Uh, but uh, yeah, there, there are a lot of things that, that you can control. Um, I, I touched on a little bit earlier about making short-term sacrifices in, in order to achieve those, those goals. So if your goal is, is home ownership, um, you know, there are, there are a few things that you can do. Uh, I just think back to my personal experience, everybody's different. Um, but if there's, if there's any lessons that I would take away from, from my experience when I bought my, my first home in 2017, um, I was in a really good spot. Um, and there were a lot of, I had a lot of blessings that, uh, that, uh, I can't take credit for. Uh, I was able to live at home with my parents while I went through college. I was able to, to, uh, to save my money. So if someone's out there and they're, you know, they're, 
they're 18, 19 years old, they're thinking about where they're going to go to school. Um, I was, and you're thinking long-term about your ability to, to afford a house in the future. Uh, I'd say, uh, be thinking about how expensive your college is going to be. Be thinking about those, those living expenses that you're going to have while you're in college, because you're going to be in college for four or five years. Um, that's, that's time that you could be spend, uh, that you could be taking to, to save money for the house that you're going to buy when you graduate, when you decide to move, um, and be careful about taking on too much debt while you're in college too. Um, that's a big problem today is a lot of, a lot of young people have uh, a lot of student debt. Um, now they may not be making payments on them because of certain deferment programs, but those debts, even when you graduate, if you're not paying them, uh, it's still going to be counted against you when you go to try to get qualified for a house. Um, so you may not be forking over the money to the, to the government to pay those loans back, but it's uh, it's going to be counted as as part of your your monthly payments, uh, and so it's going to hurt your ability to to qualify for a home loan, um, you know. And then there's other small things. I, I saw there was a, a viral Twitter post a couple weeks ago where someone was saying, you know, if you spend five dollars a day on that espresso, at the end of five years you'll have twelve thousand dollars saved up, but that's still not enough to afford a down payment. So go ahead and buy that cup of coffee every day. Well, uh, I don't want to judge anybody and their coffee buying habits, but um, and that's totally fine. You want to do that? That makes you happy. Do it. But those pay those, uh, <laughs> you know, those those coffee habits do add up. Twelve thousand dollars at the end of five years—that's a lot of money. Um, you could afford a, a down payment on a, a two hundred thousand dollar house uh, just by saving five dollars a day. So be thinking about those little expenses. You know, those those little uh, those. The candy bars at the at the checkout line at Walmart, or the coffees that you just had to have that day. Um, you know, is, is it fair that you have to give up those those little pleasures in life just because uh, government policy is making it harder for you to afford a house? Of course not. It's not fair at all. But uh, if you, as an individual, uh, just trying to better your life and just deal with the circumstances uh, that you find yourself in. Uh, there are a lot of there are a lot of things you can do, sacrifices that you can make that'll make it easier on yourself. Yeah, Tyler Curtis joining us. You ended your piece. By the way, just for full disclosure, I did a VA loan, so I did one percent down, which is a good deal. But you pay for that in other ways that we won't get into right now. That's an earned benefit. Um, you ended your piece with something that I think we need more, not just personally, but in how we report and how we cover finances and the economy. You talked about one of the things about inflation is some of it's just got to run its course. That's not popular. That doesn't get a lot of clicks. That doesn't get a lot of views. People don't want to hear that. But somebody like you that deals with, look, you're doing loans for people for 30 years, you know, half their lives for a lot of these folks. A lot of this stuff, you really do have to be a little patient and understand these are cyclical things and you got to let them run their course and don't maybe don't just hang on every headline when you're making financial decisions. I know people do that. That's probably not helpful. You close your piece with that, but I think that's a really important piece of advice, especially for young folks, maybe looking to do their first home buying or something like that. Some of this stuff just requires a lot of patience and that's just not something you hear a lot in the coverage of these types of issues, is it? No, especially not in politics. I mean, listen to any politician being interviewed or in a debate. If you had, if if uh, an interviewer asked a question about you know, how can we solve problems X, Y, and Z, and the politician answered, "Well, I don't really have a solution," or "There's no, there's no government solution." 
that person probably wouldn't garner a lot of votes. So it's it's just the incentive structure of politics of of democracy that you have to have an answer to every problem. You have to say my policy is going to fix this and uh, come up with these fancy you know five year plans. Uh, at the end of my second term, we'll have unemployment down to three percent, or you know whatever it is. We'll have inflation down to where to where our target is. But but that's just not how that's just not how society works. Um, I, you know, I, there's an analogy to be made. I think with uh, with viruses, sometimes you go to the doctor and they say, you know, you've got this viral uh, issue going on. We can't we can't prescribe you any medicine. It's just got to run its course. Uh, you know, you take your Take your ibuprofen to make the pain <laughs> to make the pain a little bit less, but ultimately the virus has to run its course. And I think inflation, there are things like you know, what the Federal Reserve has done, uh, raising rates, trying to to uh, tamp down on demand um, so that we can get uh, we can get inflation down. Those cert- those things certainly help, but some of the effects of inflation and the effects of high interest rates, we can't. There's no band aid to be put on them. Uh, there's no cure out there to make uh, to make some of these after effects of inflation go away that just have to run their course. And that's not something that, that people really want to hear. It's not something that politicians are, are going to say, but uh, I, it is true. Tyler Curtis joining us. He's a banker, but he's not your banker. So talk to your own financial wizards when you go to make these decisions. Appreciate the conversation. I, I like talking about this stuff because... Again, things like economics, there's a lot of big words that I don't understand. But you do economics every day, every time you go to the store. So it's stuff that we need to talk through, and I think this is a good application of it. Let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back on Herd Tell again, where they can find your writing, your social media, and everything you have going on, my friend. Yeah, you can check me out on Twitter, at TylerCurtis42. Um, I'm also a contributor at Young Voices. So if you go to the Young Voices website, youngvoices.com, you can find all of my writing there. Yep. He's got a jaunty picture and a sweater vest, very much looking like a banker. Yeah, very evil. Very evil banker. Look, bankers are not evil, but there are evil bankers. Do know the difference when you go to see him. Tyler, thank you so much for the time today, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, sir. to hurt tell let's end on a good note although this one's a little bittersweet but it's a life well lived and it makes me smile and it's music that has made people happy for many many years you know tony bennett the legendary singer died about a week and a half ago now as we're recording this this is by elise soleil for the today show talks his son and his wife talk about his final days and some of their memories um tony bennett's son reading from the piece from today.com we'll link to it in the Substack notes shared the final moments he spent with his last fathers. His last words to me were, thank you, Danny Bennett said to today's Hobo Katobo. Can't say it any better than that. Danny Bennett and Tony's wife, Susan Benedetto, sat for their first joint interview since the singer's death. Danny Bennett is the eldest son and his former wife, Patricia Beach, who were married from 50 to 70. Their marriage produced sons, Danny and Day. The singer was also married to Sandra Grant, who had daughters, Joanna and Antonio Bennett. Tony Bennett and Benedetto wed in 2007. The jazz icon won 19 Grammy Awards, died on July 21st, 
2023 at the age of 96. And his publicist previously confirmed that Bennett's cause of death is unknown. However, the everybody's known since 2021, the musician's family shared that he had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, form of dementia. According to the Cleveland Clinic, the brain condition causes problems with memories, learning, and gets worse with time. And Danny Bennett told today that his late dad was, quote, a man of the people. And so we experienced that as a kid, said Danny Bennett, adding that he and his family never took that for granted and that it was an amazing journey. Danny Bennett served as Tony Bennett's manager and helped to expand his popularity to a younger audience, a.k.a. the MTV generation. One of Tony Bennett's frequent collaborators was Lady Gaga together. The pair earned two Grammy Awards for the 2014 Grammy-winning album Cheek to Cheek and the 2020 album Love for Sale. Danny Bennett told dad, told of his dad, he came into my office one time and he said, I was watching MTV. He goes, I think I can do that. And then he walked out and I was like, all right. For those of you that don't know, one of Tony Bennett's real cultural moments, he did MTV's Unplugged. And it's an amazing concert. You can get it on YouTube, other outlets. Go find it. Worth your time. It's actually one of those things I listened to the day he died. I was listening to some of his music. Amazing how that kind of music is timeless, and you can tell it on that MTV special. Go look that up. Back to the Today piece. I put him on those shows that were, you know, 60,000 kids at RFK Stadium between Nine Inch Nails and PJ Harvey, he added. And, you know, it was a little nerve-wracking, but he did great. Danny Bennett shared how his dad was feeling at the time. Quote, he turned to me and said, can I ask you a question? And he goes, do you think Frank Sinatra would do this? And I'd say no. When Tony Bennett was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, said Benedetto, she and Danny Bennett assumed his career would slow down. But Tony's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I want to keep singing. Danny added, we take him to the doctor and he go, why am I here? Why am I here? We would leave. And Tony's like, Susan, I'm really OK. Why do I have to come back? Tony Bennett sang until the end of his life, said Benedetto, adding that the last tune he belted out was because of you, which was also his very first hit. The music never left him, said Benedetto, sharing his last words to his wife. Quote, that he loved me. He would wake up every day and still say that, she said. He woke up every day, happy every day. That's from the Today Show, the legendary Tony Bennett. Go check out that YouTube Unplugged. It's really an amazing thing. When I put Tony Bennett on the uh, TV while I was doing some housework the day he died, I just did the thing where I said, play Tony Bennett. And it pops up the channel, of course, Tony Bennett and other singers like that. And the way those things usually work, as you know, they play a few songs to that person, and then they go to somebody else. I got curious and went and looked at the playlist. This was 4.35 in the evening. I was getting ready to cook dinner, listening to little Tony Bennett. If I would have let that playlist go, it would have been the mid-morning of the next day before it got to a non-Tony Bennett song. That's how amazing and prolific his career was. God bless him and his family. Thanks for the music. That'll do it for her. Tell wherever you are, if you would do us a favor, can you share us on your social media? We don't pay for advertising. It's all word of mouth and what we do on our own social media. You can find us on Twitter or X or whatever Elon's calling it this week, Her Tell Show. Or you can email us, hurttellshow.gmail.com. Share it that way. Best way to find everything I'm doing, hurttell.substack.com. Completely free to subscribe to that. Gets you everything we do right into your inbox. Please share that as well. We'd really appreciate it. So wherever you are across the street around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well fed. Can't wait to talk to you again for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out 
Her Podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Folks, you've heard of Ethan Brown on the Hurt Tell Show a couple of different times, but if you're interested in learning about how to discuss things like climate change without all the politics and doom and gloom, head over to his podcast, The Sweaty Penguin. Sweaty Penguin is a late-night comedy-style climate podcast working to add nuance, critical thinking, humor, and hope to the climate conversation. they got over 100 episodes already, breaking down weekly news stories and specific topics from the vanilla to the ADHD to the international accountability to orangutans. Yes, I know, it's a comedy thing, so just go with it. But each time, exploring different ways we can make progress on these issues while still helping the economy, health, security, and everything else we care about. Feel overwhelmed, exhausted, or excluded by today's climate change discourse? This is the podcast for you. Find The Sweaty Penguin wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thesweatypenguin.com.